Wasn't Easter wonderful? The number that I was given was 886 people who joined together to sing praises to our risen Lord. And I am also deeply grateful for all of the people who made the Easter breakfast possible. The men that, uh, that said, let's do this, and all of the people who brought good stuff for us to eat. <laughs> So thank you all so much for such a wonderful Easter experience. I was impressed. I don't know about you, but that was last week. And this is this week. Does Easter only last as long as the chocolate bunny endures or uh, until the last of the peeps have been eaten? I was wondering, what does it mean to have celebrated Easter and now together, together for the next Sunday? So I went to the hymnal and uh, I looked to see what, uh, what it might suggest for Sundays after Easter. And I was disappointed. It said second Sunday after Easter, Easter is the first. And then third Sunday after Easter, fourth Sunday after Easter, fifth Sunday after Easter, sixth Sunday after Easter. There's not a whole lot of excitement in that, is there? But you know, the old church had names for these particular Sundays. Misericordious Domini. The land is filled with the mercy of God. Jubilate, shout for joy to God. Cantate, sing a new song for the Lord. You know, you can really get your teeth into those coming out of an Easter experience. But the one that I really truly enjoy was the name that they gave this particular Sunday. Quasimoda Genity. Now there is a name. As newborn babes desire the sweet milk of the word of God. It plunges us coming out of Easter right into the Bible story. It says if you really want to understand what it means to live out of Easter, you have to understand what God was doing in all of this. Well, if we plunge ourselves into the Bible story, the very first thing is we're not gonna like it because it's gonna take us right back to Adam and Eve. God created a functionally perfect world. Engineers ought to understand that. It was a world in which all of the pieces actually worked together. And into this perfect world, God put some human beings. 
they weren't superheroes. This is not uh, Superman and Wonder Woman. It's not even uh, Joan of Arc and Martin Luther. These are ordinary people that God put into the world with the faults of ordinary people. And the first thing they said was probably something that your kids have said to you. You're not the boss of me. They wanted to be independent, totally independent. And in so doing, they destroyed the relationship that they had with God. Now, at that point, God could have simply stepped back and said to himself, good ideas don't always work, and gone off to play golf. Well, we have, we have a picture of that in the uh, opening chapters of the Bible. God simply destroyed everything. But he redeemed an extended family and rebooted to cre creation 2.0. But human beings didn't understand the grace involved in that act and they continued to spiral down. The opening chapters of the, uh, of the Bible really are a statement of the problem. And the problem reaches its climax in the 11th chapter of Genesis. When human beings who have corrupted the entire world now decide they're going to build this gigantic tower, a tower that reaches all the way up to, to the heavens. And they are going to place the heavens under their dominion. Scripture tells us that God can't quite make out what it is they're doing down there. So he has to get a little bit closer, you know? And when he discovers what they're doing, he simply brushes it aside. He confuses their language. At that point, God could simply have stepped aside and let human beings destroy themselves. But he didn't. God had a plan. God had a plan that would play out over thousands of years. God picked a man, a man by the name of Abraham. And he made a promise, a threefold promise of descendant, of land, and through his descendants, all the nations of the world would be blessed. From Abraham, the promise was passed to Isaac, who was the descendant, fulfillment of the first piece, and on to Jacob. Jacob was a guy you wouldn't want to buy a used camel from, but God could use him, and Joseph, and then you recall they ended up in slavery in Egypt, but God didn't leave them in slavery. He rescued them. He saved them. He brought them out of slavery. 
from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, God led them to a land of their own and made of them a people, a people who were to serve, to live under God. They failed more often than they succeeded and ended up in exile, but then once again, they were rescued. God never abandoned his people. God never forsook them. Then a child was born, and he was called Yeshua, Savior. He was designated the Christ, the promised Messiah of old. And he became the sacrifice. On his shoulders were placed the sins of the entire world. The son was sacrificed for the sake of everybody. He was destined to die, to die on a cross. But he rose from the dead. And that was the fulfillment of the third piece, <clears throat> the third piece of the promise made so long ago. You and I are called to an Easter experience. That's what uh, Peter was talking about in his letter that we were born to a living hope through the death of Jesus Christ, you and I were called to a new future, to a future of hope. We are called to live out of the Easter experience. And it now gives direction to our lives. <clears throat> Living out of an Easter experience is not always easy. There are going to be troubles along the line. There are going to be bumps from here and there. St. Peter also talked about that. You may suffer for a little while, he said. It's like my old guttery sergeant used to say, Neither God nor the Marine Corps promised you a rose garden. And the trials that we experience are real trials. And sometimes they're very devastating. And sometimes <clears throat> they may shake your faith. And I think that's when we need to remember the words of the prophet Ezekiel. You can picture in your mind this vision that he had. He's writing to a people who have lost everything, who are broken, who are crushed, who feel that they have been abandoned by their God. They are in exile. And he tells them a vision. He tells them of a scene of a devastating battle where the bones lay across the field, sun bleached. 
Can these bones live? Look at them. Can these bones live? Of course not. You know, Ezekiel says, Lord, and Lord, the Lord says, prophesy, speak to them, and I will put breath in them. You know the words of the old spiritual, the toe bone connected to the foot bone, the foot bone connected to the ankle bone. Well, these bones in Ezekiel's vision begin to draw themselves together, and then they're clothed with muscle and sinews. And finally, they're shrouded in skin, but there's no life in them. There's no life in them until the breath of God is breathed into them. Just like with the first human created, with the breath of God, they come alive. The message was clear to a people in exile. God has not forgotten you. God has not abandoned you. This lifeless, this lifeless body, this lifeless nation will once again live and God will restore you. The message to them was clear. But what does an ancient prophet speaking to a group of people in exile on the Tigris and Euphrates river banks in Iraq have to say to 21st century Americans. I think the message to us is also clear. God has not abandoned his people. God has not forgotten us. Through the Easter experience, he has called us to a living hope. He has breathed into us the breath of life. He has given us his Holy Spirit. And he has called upon us to live out an Easter faith. Easter isn't simply a religious holiday to be packed away and stored with the Easter bunny and the, uh, the plastic shells of the Easter eggs for another year. No, God calls us to live out of an Easter faith, day by day. And over the next few weeks, I would like you to join us. And let's explore what it means to live as people who were called to Easter to live, to live as people for whom a God died and rose from the dead, that you and I might have hope to live day by day an Easter faith. Amen.